Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, ideas and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. I'm Anthony Dworkin, I'm a senior policy fellow here at ECFR, and I'm standing in for this podcast's regular host, Mark Leonard. And in our discussion today, we'll hear the fifth in our series of discussions looking back at the legacy of 1989. What did it mean for Europe and what did it mean for the world? And today I'm delighted to be joined by Jeff Wasserstrom. He's one of America's leading China specialists. He's professor of history at the University of California, Irvine. So, Jeff, we've looked in Europe and in Russia and in the United States. 1989 is the end of the Cold War. It's the the triumph of the Western model, albeit perhaps short-lived. But I suspect the perspective from China is rather different. First of all, of course, 1989 is marking a, a rather different event in China itself. But more broadly, the legacy of, of 1989 in China probably looks rather different from there. Why don't we start off by your telling me, in the Chinese perspective, how is 1989 looked back on? So 1989 um, has many different meanings across the People's Republic of China. Right now, it has an, an it has a great meaning related to Hong Kong, where the crisis is in the headlines regularly. Hong Kong has been the only part of the People's Republic of China where every year there's a large commemoration held on June 4th, the anniversary of the massacre near Tiananmen Square in Beijing in 1989. There's a small commemorative ceremony in Macau, another special administrative region of the PRC. But across the rest of the People's Republic of China, there's been a blackout on discussion, any kind of public discussion of what happened in 1989. So there's a real disconnect in terms of which part of the People's Republic of China we're we're talking about. So there's a large part of that country in which the media works ever, over time every year in the spring to try to prevent any kind of reflections on what happened in 1989, while at the same time, in Hong Kong, you'll have up to a couple of hundred thousand people gather to remember what took place and to mourn the martyrs. And I think that kind of disconnect between the two, but I think it would be wrong to imagine that 1989, because it's not talked about, doesn't have an important legacy across all parts of the PRC. I think a lot of the way that the Chinese Communist Party has operated since 1989 has been with 1989 in mind, with an idea of trying to prevent a recurrence on the mainland of what uh, they saw there, the massive protests, not just in Beijing, but in cities across the country. And of course, an effort to try to prevent something happening in China in 1989 that happened across the former Soviet bloc in 1989, which was uh, communist parties losing control and the Soviet unions, the Soviet Union eventually dissolving and Moscow becoming a much less powerful center of power. So in a way, you could say that a lot of China's leaders have been obsessed with 1989 since 1989, obsessed with the idea of trying to prevent what happened in other parts of uh, the Communist Party-run world from happening there, and also trying to prevent a recurrence in their own country of what they saw. Right. So as you say, there were these two elements, the, the domestic and the external. And looking first, maybe a little bit at the, at the 
Soviet Union and 1989 there. You know, it's often said that China studied very closely what was happening, what was the Soviet response, and what were the lessons they could draw from it. And you've kind of echoed that. Now, what do you think were the, the, the takeaways from what they saw happening? So 1989 has many different meanings across the People's Republic of China. Right now, it has an, it has a great meaning related to Hong Kong, where the crisis is in the, in the headlines regularly. Hong Kong has been the only part of the People's Republic of China where every year there's a large commemoration held on June 4th, the anniversary of the massacre near Tiananmen Square in Beijing in 1989. There's a small commemorative ceremony in Macau, another special administrative region of the PRC. But across the rest of the People's Republic of China, there's been a blackout on discussion, any kind of public discussion of what happened in 1989. So there's a real disconnect in terms of which part of the People's Republic of China we're, we're talking about. So there's a large part of that country in which the media works ever, over time every year in the spring to try to prevent any kind of reflections on what happened in 1989, while at the same time, in Hong Kong, you'll have up to a couple of hundred thousand people gather to remember what took place and to mourn the martyrs. And I think it's there's that kind of disconnect between the two, but I think it would be wrong to imagine that 1989, because it's not talked about, doesn't have an important legacy across all parts of the, the PRC. I think a lot of the way that the Chinese Communist Party has operated since 1989 has been with 1989 in mind, with an idea of trying to prevent a recurrence on the mainland of what uh, they saw there, the massive protests, not just in Beijing, but in cities across the country. And of course, an effort to try to prevent something happening in China in 1989 that happened across the former Soviet bloc in 1989, which was communist parties losing control and the Soviet unions, the Soviet Union eventually dissolving and Moscow becoming a much less powerful center of power. So in a way, you could say that a lot of China's leaders have been obsessed with 1989 since 1989, obsessed with the idea of trying to prevent what happened in other parts of the Communist Party-run world from happening there, and also trying to prevent a recurrence in their own country of what they saw. Right. So as you say, there were these two elements, the, the domestic and the external. And looking first, maybe a little bit at the at the Soviet Union, 1989 there, you know, it's often said that China studied very closely what was happening, what was the Soviet response, and what were the lessons they could draw from it. And you've kind of echoed that. Now, what do you think were the, for them, the, the takeaways from, from what they saw happen? So the big takeaway, and this, this actually connects the domestic and, um, and the international, the biggest Chinese event in 1989, or the one that's remembered is the massacre on June 4th that took place near Tiananmen Square, where protests had been centered. June 4th was also the day that Solidarity won its first uh, electoral victory. So there was discussion in sometimes in China of trying to avoid what was called the Polish disease, meaning something like Solidarity, which was understood as a movement that connected people across class lines and across different parts of the country. And that was the same thing that had happened in China uh, in 1989 itself. 
So there was a worry about, and, and there's been an obsession since 1989 in preventing any kind of movement that connects people across geographical lines and across social lines. There's been a willingness to allow a certain amount of protest when it's very, when it's one specific group or one specific place, but taking a very hardcore line on anything that smacks of connecting people. So what happened in China in 89 wasn't the same as what was happening across Eastern Europe. The, the protesters who gathered um, in Beijing and other cities, they weren't trying to end Communist Party rule. They were really calling on the Chinese Communist Party to live up to its own ideals. And it was pushing for a more kind of reformist move within within the Chinese Communist Party. In some ways, when it comes to aspirations or sort of where it fits in the arc of the history of a Communist Party, in some ways, what happened in China in 89 was more like what had happened in 1968 in places like Prague during Prague Spring. But the the simultaneity of the toppling of communist parties in Eastern Europe left the Chinese Communist Party, even if it wasn't so close to being toppled itself, sort of haunted by the specter of what could happen to them. And so they have studied very carefully what happened in places like um, East Germany, Hungary, Poland, Czechoslovakia, all with an idea of not going down that same route. And they fixed, Chinese leaders have really fixed on Gorbachev as a negative model. They do not want to be seen as China's Gorbachev, even though around the world, sometimes there's this sort of baited, waited, waited with baiting breath. Can there be a Chinese Gorbachev? Well, the one thing China's leaders have been determined not to be is the Chinese Gorbachev. Essentially, the the idea there is that you don't open a space for for reform or for public mobilization, because you could start a process that you then can't control. And do you think that in some way you said they were haunted by, you know, the fear of, of what might happen? Do you think that that was a misreading on their part? Did the Chinese authorities miss the potential to, to reform in a kind of controlled way? Or do you think their their caution was probably justified in their case? I think while they've they took they took the lesson that they definitely didn't want to allow space for this kind of mass mobilization but they also took certain steps to try to ameliorate some of the grievances that people across eastern europe had had that toppled it so i think they did they weren't just reactive they were also proactive and so to reduce things to a really terribly simplistic and materialistic mode one thing that people were very discontented about across Eastern Europe and the Soviet bloc was that the governments were not allowing them enough political freedoms, obviously, and enough freedom of speech, but they also weren't delivering the goods. People in East Berlin knew that people in West Berlin had better stuff. And, you know, after the Berlin Wall fell, some people from East Berlin went to the department stores to see if what they'd heard about these kind of place of plenty in the West was really true. One of the things that the Chinese Communist Party was determined to do after 89 to avoid having to face the kind of thing, this thing that had, had toppled communist parties, was to start delivering people the kind of consumer goods and distractions and sort of forms of entertainment and diversion. They wanted to try to get people to have fewer grievances in their daily life about sort of material conditions. At, while keeping a control on 
on mass mobilization. So in a lot of ways, they in China, in by the mid-1990s, while political reforms had really stalled, there were a lot of things going on that would have surprised somebody who had been used to the way life was in the Soviet bloc, say, in the early 1980s. You had many more books being translated uh, by foreign authors, for example. If you went into a bookstore, while things discussing the situation in China were tightly controlled, you could buy Hannah Arendt's On Totalitarianism. You could buy George Orwell's 1984. You could get these kinds of consumer goods that intellectuals wanted to have to be able to feel in touch with the rest of the world intellectuals and and the party was very concerned about intellectuals as potential creators or leaders of of movements could travel much more than their counterparts in most of the Soviet bloc could in certainly in say the 1970s you had a sense that the communist party was trying in china a new a new recipe if it were of sort of keeping control on formal political reform keeping control on mass movements but allowing people to have more kinds of choices in their daily life, at least certain segments of the population that they wanted to keep from creating trouble for them. So it's a it's this odd kind of thing. And I've thought about it sometimes as 1989 in China, the, 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 the protests were a failure. But some of the next generation of young Chinese got some of the things that young Chinese in 1989 desperately wanted. Young people in China in 1989 desperately wanted to listen to whatever kind of music they wanted to from around the world. And by the mid to late 1990s, young Chinese could do that. They wanted to have more access to Hollywood entertainment. And though there have been limits on some limits to Hollywood, there's been more mass entertainment available within China in the late 20th century and early 21st century than was true in the Soviet bloc. So they tried to create a form of Communist Party rule that was still tightly controlled, but that didn't feel as much that way. And that was more a world of entertainment and distraction and material comforts and travel. And many of those things that were not associated with the kind of... um tight control under Mao in China and tight control in parts of the Soviet bloc before things started loosening in the 80s. So it's been 30 years, and this is kind of a a broad question. But, you know, looking back over that period, how sort of sustainable do you think that that model, which you very eloquently described there, has proved to be? So it's been surprisingly sustainable because we kept thinking that it would run out and that these things would run out. And and it does seem that, I mean, the, ec- the economic growth is slowing. For a while, one of the sort of arguments that the Chinese Communist Party could make to the people in one way or another was, you know, you're living better and better than your parents or grandparents did, aren't you? And And there is a slowing to growth. What the Chinese Communist Party has done, I mean, I think of them in, I think of the Chinese Communist Party leadership in general as this incredibly diagnostic organization. And people like uh, Richard McGregor have written about this way, a journalist and political scientists like Elizabeth Perry and David Shambaugh have written about this. The Chinese Communist Party is always trying to tinker with whatever recipes it has. It's always been a very experimental organization back from the time of Mao. And Part of the experiment lately has been so when one of the kind of levers that keeps it going, this sort of offering material comforts, starts diminishing, then it looks for other levers. And the main lever it's been looking to lately has been this kind of intense nationalism and this playing to national pride and saying, telling people to focus 
on how much more respected China has become in the world and how much the Chinese Communist Party, how strong it is. At some point, this isn't going to work. I mean, at some point, the Chinese Communist Party will fall. It's just a question of whether it'll be decades still, because we keep looking for the signs of, of imminent collapse and people keep finding them and they keep not being true. So they keep trying different things. For a while, it seemed that what they were doing was moving away from personalistic, charismatic rule. But recently, in part because of this sort of focus on um, on nationalism and hyper-nationalism, Xi Jinping has been playing up this kind of personalistic, charismatic side. So it keeps being a kind of mix-and-match element where it does seem that ultimately it's not sustainable, but it keeps altering the e equation so that the party has keeps managing to stay on top. So your talk of the, the emphasis on nationalism leads me on to the second area that I wanted to talk about, which is the kind of international order side of the equation. So there was definitely a period after 1989 when people were saying the Western model has won. We're going to see a broad convergence on a sort of capitalist, liberal, democratic way of doing things. There was the unipolar moment. And now things look rather different. But do you think you could sketch out a little bit the sort of perhaps the phases through which uh, China has looked at this American-led world order and how it's kind of come to, to react and perhaps uh, push back against that? Yeah, I think that, well, that's a big, a big question. I mean, that it's, it's clear that there was too much, it was too simplistic to imagine an end of history after 1989. And I think it was, it was simplistic at, a, at several different levels. I mean, one of the things that people I don't think paid, well, some people paid attention to, but not enough attention to, was that Communist Party rule continued in places where the Communist Party had risen to power largely in some form of a kind of anti-colonial struggle. So this sort of the appeal to, to nationalism was important from the beginning in terms of Communist Party stayed in power in part when they could say only when we came along did people in this country get to control their own fate in some ways, which was very different from places like the Soviet bloc countries in which Protests in a place like Poland were in part driven by a kind of national pride, get Poland back under the control of, of Poles rather than being controlled by a distant capital. So I think there was a bit of an allusion to sort of why Communist Party rule unraveled in the places it did and didn't unravel in the other places. But I think what we've seen for a while was the Chinese Communist Party trying to become part of the international order as it was, uh, while at the same time trying to develop and start competing in the metrics of, of that order. And you could see that in a variety of things, including wanting to host an Olympic Games, wanting to be seen as a kind of regular power within a pre-existing order, while criticizing some elements of that order. But I think what we've seen in the last 10 years is a different kind of sense that that something's fundamentally wrong with that international order and that maybe it's time, maybe there's a place for doing things differently and questioning that. I think for the Chinese Communist Party, the disorder in the world and the chaos and the problems with the leading democratic countries, including the United States and the United Kingdom, has been a godsend for the Chinese Communist Party. If you think it had a kind of limited time in power, that time in power is getting extended in part 
by the fact that there just aren't other models around right now that people are looking up to with admiration. I think that's a big difference. I think in in 1989 there was a lot there was a lot more widespread admiration for what countries like the United States could do, the sort of admiration for our infrastructure, as well as admiration for things about the political system working. And now I think there's just a a widespread feeling that that things are broken in many places. And is that coming from, as it were, the the economic crisis of of 2008, or it's coming from the political problems that we see with the the rise of populists and, you know, other forms of kind of political, you know, disorder or repeated elections, democratic stalemate, or is it a mix of all of that? I think it's a mix. I think it's a mix of all of that. And I do think that 2008 was was a kind of, was a turning point moment where China, the combination of hosting the Olympics, having it go well, impressing the world with the kind of technological arrival that that spectacle uh, suggested, and then doing fairly well during the economic crisis after that led to a shift toward a sort of a, more of a boldness on the part of the Chinese Communist Party, rather than trying to rise quietly, beginning to 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 take more dramatic steps. And I think there's been a period of tightening since then, which is what's very disturbing for a lot of China specialists. We've often thought that there's a period of tightening of control and then loosening. But since 2009 or so, it's really been a decade now of the Chinese Communist Party feeling more self-confident. And I mean, the question now is if it's overreaching in some ways, but in many ways, it seems to be benefiting from each of these shifts in the international scene that you've mentioned. It benefits from populism. It benefits from disorder. It benefits um, all of these things because the Chinese Communist Party's argument is, to a certain extent, the world is a dangerous and difficult place. Other countries are trying to keep China down. They have been for more than a century. So what you need is a strong government in control. And you need to be tough in a tough world. And so as long as the world is that way, that plays into the hands of the Chinese Communist Party. So I think there was a period after 1989, when, you know, perhaps with this sense that that was the way history was going, this kind of convergence idea, you know, there was a broad degree of kind of license given to China. Um, and here, particularly letting them into the WTO was a kind of watershed moment, I guess. And, you know, obviously now what we see both in the United States and to quite a large degree in Europe as well, is much more of a sense that no, China is, as you say, it's not loosening, if anything, it's tightening state control including on the economy. And we have to really regard it much more as a strategic competitor and as a threat and as a serious rival and shifting towards a much more competitive form of engagement. Is that how much is that worrying people in China? So I think that I think you've described it really well. And one of the things I think would to, that needs to be brought in if we're taking this 30 years on perspective is it looked around 2001 as though tensions between the U.S. and China were going to be the big story of the coming decade. And then 9-11 kind of created a reset and created a period of time when, when uh, the Chinese Communist Party could continue without as much scrutiny as it would have otherwise. So that would be another example of world events that the Chinese Communist Party wasn't behind helping the Communist Party. What's complicated now, or what I worry about now, is to, one of the things is that it's important 
to be wary about the Chinese Communist Party, but it's also important to keep from this blurring into a kind of yellow peril fears and it for it blurring into racism toward the Chinese people. I think it's very, this is a very different kind of things. We're talking about a very worrisome political system and state from Beijing, but we shouldn't, we shouldn't let this rekindle the sort of age old fear of some sort of, of a Chinese, a Chinese threat. There is a Chinese communist party threat. And I think it's something that has to be taken very seriously and examined at every spot. But we need to also be watchful of keeping this, especially in the current atmosphere, from blurring into to prejudice toward Chinese people, who, after all, people of Chinese descent have shown in Taiwan, largely people of Chinese descent have created this vibrant democracy. In Hong Kong, we have people largely of Chinese descent who are joined by others who are staging these very inspiring kinds of protests or demands for democracy. So it's a tricky moment now. And we need to be, I think, very, very critical of both the, the lack of um, the, the, the tightening of controls, but especially the, the human rights catastrophe going on right now in Xinjiang, where well over a million uh, ethnic Uyghurs and other ethnic and religious minorities are being put into these draconian re-education camps. So I think it's, it's important for there to be a lot of scrutiny of what the Chinese Communist Party is doing right now, while at the same time steering clear, falling to the trap of anti-Chinese sentiment. Absolutely. And just maybe to, to finish up where we started, you spoke at the beginning about, about Hong Kong and the, the way that the memory there is so different from in mainland China. Obviously, we see a, a situation now which could be, in one perspective, the most significant kind of popular challenge to the Chinese system since 1989, but very much confined to one particular territory. Do you see this as a, a significant moment? Is there a, you know, any potential for this to kind of leapfrog and create a, some sort of echo on the mainland? Or is it something that the authorities can kind of contain and section off? What Beijing was most worried about with the protests when they began was this leapfrogging or spreading of, and, and they've worked overtime to try to punish anybody on the mainland who spreads any positive or even neutral kind of views of the Hong Kong protests, and it's and they're working overtime to present a view of the protests on the mainland that emphasize completely the relatively rare acts of violence against people that have taken place by the protesters. So there have been violent moves by the protesters, but there's been a lot of violence by the police force. And inside the Great Firewall in China, you just do not get images of the police violence, which could lead to more sympathy. So it, it's a real test. I think it's, it is the biggest test in terms of popular protests that Beijing has had to face since 1989. But at least so far, it really has been, they have succeeded in keeping it contained within Hong Kong. It has taken its toll on the international image of the Chinese Communist Party. So I think there's been a cost, but the question is how much of a cost to Beijing it will be. It, it's the subject that's on my mind constantly. I just finished a short book called Vigil, Hong Kong on the Brink, and it'll be out in February. And it's something that it's very complicated. I think it has a lot to do with 1989 in many ways, but that would be the subject for a whole whole nother conversation. I guess this whole question of China's persistence as a, 
a rival power, a, a rival pole in international politics, you know, in a way that I think is new since 1989 is also a, a big subject to keep talking about. But this has been a fantastic discussion. Thank you very much. So I guess traditionally at the end, we ask our contributors for a reading recommendation in your area, looking back at 1989 and China today. I know there's been a lot written, and I'm glad you mentioned your book because I was going to the, your forthcoming book. But is there anything else that you would, one or two things that you'd steer people towards to as a, as a way in maybe to understanding China and how it's evolved in this period? Sure. So there are two things. One I'd mentioned is a book called Minjian, The Rise of Chinese Grassroots Intellectuals by uh, French scholar Sebastian Veig, who's also written wonderfully on Hong Kong. But this is about what he calls grassroots intellectuals. They're a new kind of intellectual within China who've been trying to carve out spaces for themselves online and other ways to be a critical voice within a tightly controlled authoritarian state. So it's a new book by from Columbia University Press. But the other thing, I'll just mention the name of a writer to follow. Her name is Yang Yang Chung. And she's been publishing a lot of short pieces in places like China File, China Heritage, SubChina. These are websites devoted to Chinese studies. She's a physicist who's also a very articulate critic of the Chinese system, and she was born around 1989 and is a, is now based outside of China, and she writes about things like the complexities of trying to communicate with her family back in China about the situation in Hong Kong. And she's in this kind of great tradition of scientist dissident figures like Sakharov and Fang Lijiu in the Chinese case. And she's just a very original and bold voice. So Yang Yang Chung is somebody I'd encourage you to Google. Fantastic. Thanks. Well, that's great to steer people towards these writers that they might not otherwise have come across. So thank you very much for that. And thank you again for, for joining us. This was a, a fascinating discussion. So that brings us to the end of our podcast for this week. Um, thank you very much for listening. And the uh, researcher of ECFR's podcast is Jonathan Hackenbruch, and our editor is Marlena Riedel. So from me, Anthony Dworkin, it's thank you and goodbye for this week.